While everybody is getting settled, let me uh, go over a couple of announcements. First of all, a reminder about the congregational meeting that will be on February the 22nd, immediately following the morning worship service, and we do have one matter to vote on, and that has to do with accepting this amendment that we put together in light of... of, um, what is taking place with regard to uh, uh, same-sex marriage. And I don't know if you paid attention to this piece of news this last week, but in Alabama, yesterday or the day before, they, were, they had appealed the, this decision to put, it, put off implementation of, of same-sex unions, and it was turned down by the Supreme Court and thrown back to the state. And which meant the state had to start enforcing that, and yet um, Roy, what's his name, Judge Roy Moore, who's the uh, chief justice in Alabama, told all the judges, probate judges, and everybody else in Alabama to uh, ignore the Supreme Court. I just love it when a battle comes together. So, and it didn't, and Alabama was been noted for for fighting the federal government before. So anyway, this this is really significant, and this is a radical change. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, but I think it's important as a local church to be protected in terms of our legal documentation bylaws with reference to our clear statement of what the Bible teaches and our clear intent to teach and to proclaim what the Bible teaches and to implement that in terms of the policies and the practices of the pastoral staff and representatives of this church. So that's why it's important to take a look at that. That weekend, um, also on that Saturday morning, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast. Um, Dwayne Bohack, who's a Texas state representative from this area, is also is uh, confirmed he will be here 7.30 that morning. So please invite anyone else that you know. I'm going to try to send out some announcements to some of the other uh, churches that some of their folks may want to come over and and talk to him and get to and hear him. Also, Thursday night, February 19th, we're going to have a couple of IDF soldiers come and talk to us after class. So make sure that you invite people, encourage people. It's nice to have a good turnout when you have guests come and and uh, and talk. And it should be interesting, especially in light of everything that's going on in the Middle East. So I think that should take care of that. The other announcement is that last uh, last night, Eileen Apple, Barb's mother, uh, went to be with the Lord, and so she will. We will have a memorial service for her. If you didn't see the second email, the first one was wrong. It's not at 4:30 on Saturday afternoon. It's at two o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So this I corrected announcement went out, but the uh, memorial service will be here at West Houston Bible Church, 2 o'clock this Saturday afternoon. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the word. Scripture teaches that we're either living our life on the basis of God, the Holy Spirit, or on the basis of our sin nature. One or the other, there's no in-between, there's no mix, one or the other. When we stop walking by the Spirit, we're uh, we default to sin nature control. The only way to recover is to confess sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will then open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look out on the world around us, we see that there is just massive rejection of truth, massive rejection of 
the Bible, massive rejection of Jesus Christ. We live in a world, Western civilization, and that has been made and built by biblical Christianity. And in this country that is grounded upon the truth and upon your word, where they are rejecting it, people are hostile to it, the antagonism that and hatred that many people have toward Christianity and towards biblical truth and towards Christians is is more than this country has ever seen, more than we've ever experienced. And the more the culture drifts in a direction against you, the more hostile, the more overt this opposition becomes. And we as believers need to live our lives with courage, with strength, living out our lives before you in a way that that, uh, our lives, our testimony shines as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and that we do not draw back in, in fear or anxiety, that we do not let the world force their views of secularization upon us, that there are two spheres of life, secular and religious, and that we need to uh, make sure that we live every area of our life, whether it's at work and take the hit if we run into opposition, or whether it is in our homes and take the hit if it faces if we face opposition because we've been warned by the Lord Jesus Christ to expect that kind of opposition. We need to make sure that the opposition comes to the truth and not because we have a wrong attitude or 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 a wrong way of approaching our life and the and the uh, confrontation with unbelief. Father, we pray you just strengthen us, encourage us, help us as we study through Uh, the books of Samuel, that we might gain a greater insight into your grace and into how you work in culture, in history, in government, politics, and leadership. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Tonight we are going to do a flyover of 1 Samuel. I had given serious consideration to doing a flyover of both first and second uh, Samuel. The second Samuel has 24 chapters. First Samuel has 31 chapters. That's 55 chapters. I didn't think you all could listen fast enough. I know you can't write fast enough, but you certainly can't listen fast enough. So th- that meant that by about 15 minutes into it, everybody would be in about the second or third stage of anesthesia. So... I'm just going to cover 1 Samuel, and we'll do a flyover 1 Samuel. Now, if you want the short version, it's real easy. It's Samuel, Saul, David. You got that? Let's close in prayer. Okay, that's that's the quick version. But then we need to go down a little bit below that to see what cover, what is covered in uh, each of those sections. So here's a chart. This is it for the uh, uh, visuals tonight. I think this, this gives you the basic basic overview. You have Samuel, who is God's provision for Israel. He is God's provision for Israel, and God is preparing Israel. At the, as we open 1 Samuel, he's preparing to deliver Israel from their oppression by the Philistines by bringing, uh, bringing about a tremendous change. What we see here is how God controls history. He controls history th- covertly, not overtly. He doesn't show up on the scene. He controls it from behind the scenes. Now, in the Old Testament, we're clearly in an age when we have an, an incomplete canon, and so there is direct revelation and direct guidance given to prophets, and to leaders of Israel. But this is not normative. It's unique to those leaders. Samuel gets direct revelation from God. He channeled it to Saul. He told Saul. Saul didn't get direct communication from God. David also received direct communication from God as a leader in Israel. But this was not normative. These kinds of direct communications from God, direct revelation in the Old Testament, a lot of times you'll hear people who think that this is is normal, 
It was never normal. It was only through a very restricted group of people, leaders, priests, prophets, kings, writers of Scripture, and it wasn't all the time. There were times when God did not speak and did not give revelation. We see that as the in our opening section in the first eight chapters. We're told when we get to uh, chapter uh, 3 that God has been silent for some time. And this uh, dream, this vision, this revelation that, that comes to Samuel, his first prophecy in chapter 3 is, is new. This has not happened in recent history in Israel. And so that not only authenticates Samuel in his new role as a prophet, but it also awakens the people to the fact that God is doing something new. This is very similar to what happens at the end of the Old Testament period when the Old Testament uh, revelation ceases and God is silent. There's a period of silence from the close of the Old Testament canon, approximately 430 to 440 B.C., for over four, for 400 years, there's silence from God from about 430 or so up until the time that that um, Gabriel announces to Zechariah that his barren wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a baby who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. So that period when God was silent, and the only time that you knew anything from God was if you picked up his word and read the word. So we look at this first section. The key person is Samuel. And the focus in this, these eight chapters, as I said a minute ago, is that God prepares to deliver Israel by a great change. Now, one of the things I want you to note as we go through this, I'll be developing an outline as we go through uh, 1 Samuel, but I try to write my major points as far down into the details of the text as I can with God as the subject, because in especially in the Old Testament, in historical or in narrative literature, in the stories, who's the hero? In, in a good story, there's always a hero and there's always the enemy. Who's the hero in the Bible? The hero is always God. And this is one of the things I, I always have a little pet peeve about when you look at your study Bibles, you look at Bible Knowledge Commentary, and they give you an outline. They always phrase the outlines in terms of, for example, at the beginning of chapter 1, it would be something about the family of, El, uh, of Elkanah. Uh, it would be something about Hannah, making those individuals the subject of those sections. But they're not the subject of the section because they're not the hero in the section. The real hero all the way through is God. God is the one working. So I, I try to make these major divisions that way. So the first section is that God prepares to deliver Israel by a great change. There's a preparation that, that takes place in these first eight chapters, and this change agent is going to be this new prophet who's a prophet, priest, and judge, the greatest of all the judges, the first of all the, the prophets. He's, he's, there hasn't been a prophet since Moses. The first of all the prophets and also a priest. He is, in that sense, a, a type of Christ. Uh, uh, there's a certain parallels. Christ is prophet, priest, and king. Samuel was prophet, priest, and judge. And then we're going to see that this period is very much like the period in the judges and not unlike modern contemporary society because it's based upon a rejection of God as the, uh, as, as the absolute uh, ruler of the universe, the sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, and it's replaced by everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. It is a time of, of rank moral relativism, an ignorance, not only an ignorance of the Mosaic law, but a rejection and an abuse of the Mosaic law by the very priests that are established by the Mosaic law. And those are, that's the family of Eli and his two uh, two uh, rebellious, perverse sons. So by the time we get to the end of Samuel, we see that the people haven't re- haven't responded. They they haven't changed. They are still rejecting God. The main verse, key verse for Judges, was what? There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
And that is a double entendre, that there's no king in Israel. I mean, not only was there not a king like Saul or David, but there, they, they, at that point in the theocracy, God was supposed to be the king. And they had rejected God. Because they had rejected God and God's absolutes, they were mired in moral relativism. So what happens when we come to chapter 8 is Israel rejects this whole theocratic idea, and they want to have a king like every other king. And First Samuel chapter 8 is probably the best, most significant chapter on political theory that you have in, in the Bible, along with one or two sections out of, out of Deuteronomy. And so in chapter 9, God is going to give the people what they want. It's a reminder of Psalm 106, verse 15, where uh, commenting upon the 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 lust of the Exodus generation for meat, it, uh, the writer of Psalm 106 says, God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. God's going to answer their request for a king. What we'll see is the request wasn't wrong. Their motive and their desire, what they wanted to get out of it was wrong. They wanted to have a king like everybody else. They wanted to be like everybody else. That is a motto that is uh, being engraved more and more deeply on the evangelical church of today. They want to have a culture in their church that is like that outside, uh, outside in the world so that the unbeliever in the world are the car- or the carnal Christian who's in the world can come into the church and feel comfortable. But the reality is that when an unbeliever comes into the church They shouldn't be made to feel uncomfortable by people who are self-righteous and who uh, look at them and don't talk to them or think they have or communicate the idea they have to change a lot of things before they can become acceptable to God. That's completely wrong. That's er that's arrogance and that's legalism. But as the Word of God is taught with grace and love, they should become more and more uncomfortable as God the Holy Spirit convicts them of their unrighteousness and of their need for a Savior. And they're going to have one of two responses. They're either going to be negative, in which case they are going to react with hostility and anger and resentment, or they are going to be just as thankful as they can be that they have heard the wonderful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's happened in Israel is that they have succumbed to the pressure of the world, and as we saw at the end of Judges, they have out-Canaanited the Canaanites. They have out-Philistined the Philistines. They have out-perverted the perversions of all the nations around them so that they don't look any different. At the end of the book of Judges, They don't look any different from anybody else in the world. And sadly, that's true about the church today. See, this is a sermon inside the whole message. That's the sad point about the church and about a lot of Christians. Maybe true about some of us. Our lives and how we react to adversity and difficulty and heartache and challenges in our life doesn't look any different from the guy down the street who doesn't have a clue who God is or who Jesus Christ is. Our lives are to be a visible testimony in how we react to disappointment, how we react to heartache, how we react to, to loss, to failure, is, should be different. How we react to other people, how we react to people who don't like us. Uh, we're to love one another as Christ loved the church. That should be our greatest apologetic, our greatest nonverbal defense of, of Christianity. So... Israel's that way, and so what do they say? We want to have a king like everybody else. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king like everybody else. You're going to have the same kind of lousy leadership that everybody else has, and I'm going to give you exactly the kind of person everybody has. So we're going to pick a king that is the best-looking king. He's going to be head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's going to be handsome. In fact, in, in, in 1 Samuel 9, it, twice it mentions the fact that, that Saul is a handsome king. He is physically attractive. He's the kind of guy that if you were going to pick him to run, for, pick somebody to run for president, that's who you would pick. There's a story about Warren G. Harding. Y'all love Warren G. Harding. Everybody here remembers Warren G. Harding. That's your favorite president. 
Warren G. Harding was, some people know that there's some good things about Warren G. Harding. He didn't do much, which is the role of federal government not to do much, to keep their hands off of people. But Warren G. Harding was picked for a very superficial reason. He was the first presidential candidate after women got the vote. He was picked because he looked attractive. He was handsome. He would appeal to the women voter. And that's why, that's one of the factors that went into selecting him. See, we're just, people are just superficial. We want somebody who's going to look good. That's why they picked John F. Kennedy instead of Richard Nixon and after the debates in 19, uh, 1960 because Nixon didn't look good on television. He had that five o'clock shadow. And so we, we are very superficial. It fits with an existential framework. We are more concerned about, uh, about appearance than substance. We want the president to look good and to sound good and to be articulate. And if the, the president may be brilliant, but if he stumbles over words and he can't give a, a, a speech without a, a few verbal blunders, then he can't be president. He may be the best president in the world, but we reject him for very superficial reasons. So Saul is picked for superficial reasons. And he, it's interesting when we look at First Samuel chapter 9, the first thing we see happening is that, that his dad, Kish, has lost some donkeys. And so Saul is sent out to find the donkeys. And he can't do it. He's incompetent. He goes three days. He can't find his ass with both hands. <laughs> or nine of them. He's at a total loss. Now, in Israel, the picture throughout the Bible that is given of a good king is he's a good shepherd. He can take care of the flocks and the cattle and goats and everything. Saul can't do that. He's at an absolute loss. So the first picture that we see of Saul is that he is incompetent as as a leader. The first picture we see of David is what? David is a... Usually it was the youngest in the family who went out to take care to take care of the sheep. It was the, the grunt work. And so David was sent out to take care of the sheep, and he did a fabulous job. He was highly responsible. He was effective. He protected the sheep. The picture, there's an intended contrast there between Saul and David. And Saul is a, is a failure. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, a tribe uh, that has been a spiritual failure throughout the book of Judges. And David comes from the tribe of Judah, which is a tribe that is, uh, ha- ha- is, a, is large and it's been successful and it is expected to produce, uh, to produce leadership. So Saul is picked for all the wrong reasons, but God is the one who ultimately selected him. Here's the principle. We get the leader we deserve. Think about that. Start with the president and say, this is the president this country deserves. And just work it down from there, okay? That's about all I need to say, but you get the point. We get the president, we get the leader that reflects the values of the country. Now, it doesn't reflect everybody's values. It doesn't reflect, I don't think it reflects the majority, but it's a slim majority. And not all of them vote. And not all of them go, go, go to the polls. Not all of them pay attention to politics. We have a lot of Christians who think that that's wrong to pay attention to politics. That's sad because part of their job, part of every Christian's job is that we are to do everything to the glory of God. Everything. And that involves our citizenship responsibilities, which includes voting. So under, under Saul, you have some great pictures. Saul, as we'll see when we study Saul, Saul is a picture of Satan. He's a type of Satan. Now, I think Saul was a believer for a number of reasons, which we'll get into. It says he has a change. He changes into a new man in First Samuel chapter uh, chapter ten. Also, when when uh, Samuel comes back, God allows him to return from the dead. The only person in history that's come back without resurrection from the dead. Others have come back through resurrection, but Saul was not resurrected. He was allowed to return as a vision 
to show up for the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And in the things that Samuel said, he said to Saul, today you will be with me, with, with me in Sheol, not across the gulf on the other side, but with me in Sheol. So that indicates again that Saul was saved. But Saul's used in a, in a literary sense as a type of Satan, just as David is a type of the Messiah. And as Saul persecutes David, that is a picture of what is going on in this church age between the anointing, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross when he, uh, when he, uh, when he uh, establishes the sacrifice for the new covenant. Between that event and his second coming, is analogous to the period in David's life between his anointing and his being crowned as king. He's anoint- when he was anointed as king, that God didn't remove Saul from being king. When Jesus cut the new covenant on the cross, Satan did not stop being the prince and the power of the world. He didn't stop being the God of this age. He still had control. And so just as David had to deal with the opposition from, from Saul because he was living in Saul's world, and Saul tried to kill him 16 times uh, over the course of those probably 10 or 12 years, David had to submit to his authority because he was the king. That's not part of the typology. But he had to, he followed that persecution the same way. We as a church are going to be persecuted because we're living in the devil's world, and we have to bide our time until the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom. So we see from chapters 9 through chapters 15 is the rise of, of Saul, the establishment of his kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom of Israel under, under Saul's uh, mil- military uh, prowess, and then his decline, his spiritual decline, his disobedience to God. And at the same time, David, uh, God rejects in chapter 15, God rejects Saul from being king, but doesn't at that point, uh, remove him from the throne, although he says he takes his kingdom from him. That doesn't mean he's removed from being king. It means he's not going to have a dynasty. His son, Jonathan, is not going to be the heir. Saul will lose the kingdom. And so in chapter 16, Samuel anointed David as the king, and we see David's rise during that period from 16 to 31 is the period basically when David is on the outs with Saul and is being persecuted. And then in chapter 31, the Philistines give a massive defeat to Saul's army. Saul and his sons all die. Saul is so severely wounded that in order to protect himself from the abuse and the torture of the Philistines, he fell on his sword, committed suicide, and then his body was desecrated by the Philistines. His head was posted on the wall at Beit Shan, and it was up to the men of Jabesh Gilead coming from across the Jordan to come and to treat his body with respect and to and to bury it. And so that ends First Samuel, and it's at the beginning of Second Samuel that David hears the news. And that David then in chapter 2 is finally crowned king, but only of Judah in Hebron. And he's a king there for seven years before he uh, unites the kingdom and the descendants of Saul give their allegiance to, uh, to David. So that's the second level of the flyover. Okay, the simple level was Samuel, Saul, David. Now you've got it. Now we've gone through another level. Now we're going to drill down just a little bit further to see some of the details in each one of these particular sections. So the first section, again, is that God prepares to deliver Israel by a great change. The old order is going to end. The order of the theocracy is going to be brought to a conclusion, and God is going to shift to something that has always been part of the plan, which was to have a king. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and there's instruction in the law as to how frequently the king should read the law. Every day he should read it and make his own copy. And so the assumption there in Deuteronomy 18 is that the the kings will do this. Well, there was no 
basis yet in the law or in Israel for a king, but it anticipated that there would be a king in the future. So it wasn't that God wasn't going to give them a king. He was. Now, that that king that God was going to provide for them was plan A was David. But since the people were carnal, they they jumped the gun and they wanted to have a king like everybody else. So God went to plan B and said, okay, you want a king like everybody else? I'll give you a an ungodly king, an irresponsible king, a self-centered king, a king that's going to raise your taxes and a king that's going to destroy your economy and a king that's going to destroy the spiritual life in the country. I'll give you that kind of a king because that's what you want. And so that's what you're going to get. So we're going to see this transition, and for the people to appreciate David, they had to first learn the negative. So Saul's a lesson in the negative. So Samuel comes along, and at the very beginning of the book, we see this situation of spiritual darkness, spiritual confusion in Israel. And we focus on a family, a specific individual in Ramathayim Zophim, in the mountains of Ephraim, this is about 18 to 20 miles north of Jerusalem in the area today. It's part of the West Bank. And we have this man, Elkanah, who is, and it gives his uh, genealogy there. And he has two wives, which is uh, not advocated by the Mosaic Law. You'll often hear people talk about how the Bible uh, accepts uh, polygamy. It never gives a positive spin to polygamy anywhere. It always presents it as a problem, and it's a problem here because you have these two two wives, Penina and Hannah. And Hannah is the wife that Elkanah loves. He gives her a double portion, but but God has closed her womb. She she's barren. She can't have a child, and so this just makes her life miserable because she's being persecuted by uh, by Penina. And so she just goes to the Lord and uh, and takes her grief and her uh, sorrow and sadness to Shiloh. We'll learn a little bit about Shiloh, or Shiloh as it's pronounced in the Hebrew, the location of the tabernacle. And there she prays and she makes a vow to God that if God would allow her to become uh, pregnant, then he, she will dedicate the child to God. And while she is there uh, praying... Uh, she runs. She meets uh, Eli, and we're introduced to Eli, the high priest, and he is a a corpulent, lazy, abusive priest to the people, and his sons are worse. But we'll get to him more when we get to chapter three. So we learn a little bit about the family of Elkanah that they are focused on the Lord. They go to the uh, tabernacle on a regular basis. They bring uh, significant sacrifices, which shows that there is some uh, some wealth to the family of Elkanah. And God answers uh, Hannah's prayer, and she becomes um, she becomes pregnant. And we're told that uh, she keeps the child Samuel until he is weaned, and that may surprise you. But in some Middle Eastern cultures, an infant will not be weaned until they're five or six years of age. First time I taught through this passage, I was in my first church, and the lady who played the piano was about 35, and she didn't, and I found out afterwards, she didn't wean one of her children until he was old enough to understand why she wasn't going to give him milk anymore. This is not unusual. In our modern society, it is, but in an agrarian, rural culture, which Israel was, it wasn't un- unusual at all. And so Samuel was probably not you know, a year and a half or two years old when uh, she dropped him off at the, at the tabernacle. He was probably uh, four, five, six years of age even at the outset. So then we have a wonderful prayer from uh, uh, Hannah, a prayer of gratitude to God. I want you to notice a couple of things. It focuses on the Lord, verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord. For there's none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Now, that is a great verse to memorize. It's a great verse to use in prayer. It's a great verse to be reminded about in times of difficulty because there's no source of stability greater than a rock, and there's no rock greater than God. No one is holy like the Lord. There's none beside you, nor is there any 
rock like our God. And so then in this, she also recognizes the key issue in this section is that God is the one who's bringing life out of death. In verse 6, she says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. God is looking at, at the culture of Israel as a dead culture, a spiritually dead culture. And what, what is God going to do? He's going to bring life where there's death. They begin in the death of paganism at the beginning, and they are alive spiritually as the prototype of the Messiah, David, becomes king when we get into Second Samuel. So this foreshadows that. Another great, uh, great line in this uh, in this hymn is the end of verse 8 for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's Ken Follett took a line from that for one of his uh, one of his novels I reckon it's a it's a great historical novel the pillars of the earth then we see at the end of verse 9 for by strength no man shall prevail and that's one of the points that God's demonstrating here is Israel's been trying to do it their own way all along, and they failed, and that's the same thing that's true for us. And then in verse 10, notice, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. How did Hannah have this insight? Tremendous insight that through this child, the order is going to change. And this is going to lead to the Messiah. For she says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. That's reminiscent of Psalm 2. That the Lord's, the Lord and his anointed will fight and destroy the rulers of the, of the nations. Goes on to say, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Now, if this isn't a messianic passage, I don't know what is. But notice how it also recognizes that God's plan is for Israel to have a king. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So that's the first first section. I'm spending a lot of time on this. Then Elkanah goes to his house. The child is left at the, at the uh, tabernacle. We're introduced to the two wicked sons of Eli who are about as spiritually depressed and degenerate and apostate as they can possibly be. They are spiritually raping the people, demanding that they pay for, for, for sacrifices and that they are even demanding that the women who came to worship would prostitute themselves uh, to them. So they are just as, uh, uh, as abusive as they can be towards the people. They are abusive leaders and abusive, uh, abusive shepherds. They're contrasted to both Hannah in terms of her, uh, uh, God's blessing upon them as well as to Samuel. And I want you to note three times we have this statement at the end of verse 21. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And then in verse 26, and the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. Does that remind anybody of anything? Luke 2.42. And speaking of young Jesus, he grew in wisdom and stature. That's the only difference. Wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So there's a, this, this is definitely making a, a statement that he is a prototype or type of the Messiah. And then if you look at chapter 3, we, we read in verse 19 again, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. That means that, that Samuel didn't say foolish things, that he, if he prophesied, it always came to pass that God honored Samuel because Samuel put the Lord first. Now when we get to chapter 3, we see Samuel as a young boy who's uh, sleeping inside the tabernacle. And at the very beginning of the, of the chapter, we read that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no, and it's, it adds its widespread revelation, there's no, no revelation from God taking place at all. He's silent. But now he begins to speak to Samuel. It's so unusual. Samuel doesn't realize what's going on for a while. And verse 7 says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That means he didn't have, an, it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It just means he hasn't been communicating with God yet. And then the Lord uh, calls to Samuel and gives him a prophecy in verse 10. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. 
Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, Speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is the core announcement in chapters 1 through 8 where God is announcing the shift that is going to take place. In that day I will perform against Eli and all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile. That's a good word. Not politically correct, but it's a good word. And he did not restrain them. We have a few people in our government who are vile. That'd be a good word for some people to use. Uh, so, and therefore he says, I've sworn to the house of Eli, in verse 14, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And this goes back to a promise that God had made to another Phinehas, the two sons of Eli were Hophni and Pinchas, actually. Uh, Phinehas, who's the grandson of Aaron, the son of Eliezer. And in uh, uh, there was a promise that was made in Numbers chapter 25, verse 13, that God entered into a covenant, uh, a peace covenant, a covenant of the priesthood with that Phinehas, saying that the, the priesthood will never depart from your house. Well, Eli wasn't from the line of Phinehas. So God is now going to bring judgment against the house of Eli and eventually shift things over to the line that, uh, that descends to the house of Zadok, which is why you have Zadokite priests in charge of the temple in the future millennial kingdom. Then we come to chapter 4, where God is part of instituting this change. God is so uh, uh, irritated, that is an anthropomorphism or anthropopathism, at Israel, judging them, that God removes himself in an interesting set of circumstances from Israel. He has himself captured in battle at the Battle of Aphek, and this is such an overwhelming defeat for Israel that it results in the death of uh, Hophni, Phineas, and uh, when Eli hears the news, he falls over dead. And his neck is broken. He dies in verse 18. For we're told the man was old and heavy. It's another fatty in the Bible. He had judged Israel for 40 years. And his daughter-in-law, who is the wife of Pinchas, is pregnant. And when she gave birth, they named the son it Chavod. Chavod is a Hebrew word for glory. When you prefix it with an aleph, that means no. There is no glory. The glory has departed. That's what ichavod means, no glory. So then we run through, one. Of, I think, one of the funniest chapters in the Bible. It was meant, the, the, One thing I learned years ago translating Samuel is the writer of Samuel is extremely earthy in his language. He has a there's great humor in here, pokes fun. There are a lot of puns in the Hebrew. There's a lot of little uh, jabs at other religions, and this is one of them. God is no respecter of other religions. I, that is something we need to understand. God is not PC. God does not respect the Mormons. God does not respect Islam. God does not respect the Buddhists. God does not respect the atheists. He says the atheists are fools and everybody else are idolaters and they're idiots. And then he just kind of makes fun of them. And here we have a situation in the Philistines where they captured the ark. They have to figure out some place to put it. So they're going to show the superiority of their God to Israel's God. So they're going to put the ark in the temple of Dagon. Next morning they go in and this big statue to the fish god Dagon is lying down, bowing down to the ark. So they, they, they say, okay, well, this they, they put him back up. And the next day they go back in there. Now he's fallen down, but his head and the palms of his hands have been broken off. And showing that, that God's the one who's in control. And then God gave everybody hemorrhoids or tumors or something extremely uncomfortable so that they couldn't sit down for a while. And then and I have no idea what this looked like. In order to appease God, the Philistines made, you know, the idea was if you made something that looked like what the problem was, then that would somehow appease the God. So they made golden hemorrhoids. 
That would be the only time in the English language where that adjective is applied to hemorrhoids. And eventually, after the ark migrates, they say, ah, we don't want him anymore, send him over to Gath. We don't want him anymore, send him to Ekron. We don't want him anymore, send him someplace else. So finally they decide they're going to send him back after seven months. And they're, they're, they've been visited with every plague in the world. And mice, uh, not only with the, the hemorrhoids or tumors or whatever they were, and the mice, and they're just, um, they, they, they just stick, stick the ark on a, on a cart, and they hook up a couple of milch cows, that's cows that have never been yoked, and hope that it'll find its way back to Israel. Of course, God's in control, so they do. And they come to Beth Shemesh, and the the cart stops. And so the people of Beth Shemesh made... See, this is what happens with paganism. You don't understand the truth of God's word, so you mix things up, and it's always bad. It's always bad to compromise and to conflate things. So they have a superstitious view of the ark, but they are ignorant of the law, so they look inside the ark, and that's going to end up getting 50,000 of them killed because they've treated God with disrespect. But then they they understand that they should do something respectful, so they take the wood from the cart and they split it and they offer the cows as burnt offerings. So what we learn from this is you're half right, you're all wrong. And the results are disastrous. Then in chapter 7, people at uh, Beth Shemesh don't want the ark either. Beth Shemesh is at uh, the Arab village that's there now is called Abu Ghosh. And if you have been to Israel with me the last night that we're there, we go to Abu Ghosh and we have a big dinner, going away dinner at an Arab restaurant there in Abu Ghosh. So that's where it's located, about uh, maybe 15 miles from Jerusalem. So they go to uh, uh, Kiryat Jerim there, and they uh, this is where the ark stays for a while. And we're, then we're told the rest of the chapter about how great Samuel is as the leader. He is the one who is the leader of Israel, and he warns them in verse 3, and this comes right out of Deuteronomy. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. It's not a matter of increasing your military budget. It's not a matter of getting new technology because what we learn is the Philistines wouldn't let him have iron. So they have an inferior military technology. It's not a matter of learning a new strategy. It's a matter spiritually. Spiritual truth is the ultimate causative factor in everything personally and in the history of the world. You can't measure that in a laboratory. I am so tired of hearing Christians talk about various economic theories and legal theories and all these other things that are measured in the laboratory by social science. The one thing it leaves out is the spiritual factor, and the spiritual factor is it doesn't matter how right your theory might be. If you're not in right relationship with God, your country's going to go right down the tubes. It will get flushed by God. It doesn't matter how good everything else may be. So as we face the beginning of this next election cycle, It doesn't matter who gets elected to be in the White House the next time. It doesn't matter what this Congress is going to do because the culture hasn't changed. And until the culture changes, everything else is camouflage. Everything else is just cosmetics. Then we get into the next section, uh, or the end of this section, Chapter 8. The people reject God, and they they, uh, tell Samuel in Chapter 8, Verse 6, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, Samuel would have been a little irritated because he would, if he was normal, he would take that as rejection. And so God counsels him. This is biblical counseling. The Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people. I'm sure Samuel said, now, wait a minute, what, Lord? That's why the Lord repeated it again in verse 9. Now, therefore, heed their voice. Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. Pay attention to this. They haven't rejected you. They have rejected me, God says. And remember this, when you're witnessing to people or you're talking to people in your family or people at work and you're presenting the gospel 
and you're talking about things, and they reject you, and they think you're crazy, and they think you're nuts, and they think you're some kind of religious fanatic. They're not rejecting you. Don't take it personally. That's what God said to expect. They are rejecting God. It's not you. You're just the messenger. So learn to relax a little. So the, he, uh, God says, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So it's ultimately a theological issue. And so he then warns the people, starting in verse 10, what's going to happen when you get a king. He's going to increase the bureaucracy. He's going to raise taxes. He's going to get involved in foreign wars. He's going to raise, um, your, draft your young men into the army, and they're going to lose their lives on the battlefield in foreign battles. And nevertheless, verse 19, the people said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like every other carnal idiot on the planet. So Saul is chosen to be king. God anoints him. God chooses him. There's no mistake. We're told he's a Benjamite in verse 2. He's choice, bachur. This is the same word that's used for election. He is choice. That means that he is uh, a prime candidate. He is the best. He's choice. He's handsome. Uh, he's, he's choice in the sense that he looks the role. His name was Saul. From the shoulder upward, he's taller than most of the people. But he's spiritually daft because when they're looking for these donkeys and they're, they're camping out, his servant says, well, look, in this city nearby, uh, there's a man of God. Saul didn't have a clue. Ramah, which is where Samuel was, isn't that far from Gibeon, where Saul was from, just less than 10 miles. And so uh, Saul is totally ignorant of Samuel, totally ignorant of spiritual things, and, and it's, so it shows where his priorities are. So they said to the servant, let's go find him. And, there's, and when they do find Samuel a little later on, Samuel says, well, this whole thing is all about you because God's already told me that you're coming. In verse 16, he says, God told me yesterday that tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may deliver, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. And so God is going to work through Saul and will accomplish some things. Now, in chapter 10, Saul is anointed. I'm going to fly a little faster now because I know I'm going to run out of time. Uh, Saul is anointed, and then there are going to be some miraculous things uh, that happen. And this authenticates Samuel's choice. See, whenever God doesn't do things in private and stop there. Whenever God does something in private, and Samuel anointed Saul in private, God always authenticates it objectively in public. That's why when you get into some of these churches where, where people always talk about, well, God said this to me and God said that to me, God doesn't say anything to you in private that he doesn't authenticate objectively in public. So that means that 999 all the way to 100% is wrong. Those claims are all wrong, 100%, because they don't fit the biblical pattern. And it's all sub subjectivity. It has nothing to do with truth. But what we see is that Saul's first flaw is exposed, uh, starting in verse 9 uh, down through verse 16. And even though all of this has happened and God has worked in Saul's life, Samuel has anointed him, told him that he's going to be, uh, the kingdom's going to be given to him. When Saul gets home and uh, t tells, talks to his uncle, who asks him in verse 15, what did Samuel tell you? Saul says, well, he told us where, that the donkeys had been found, but he doesn't say anything about the fact that he's been anointed king or the kingdom's been given to him or anything about the spiritual things that went on. That shows where his priority... He, he wants to be sort of a covert believer. He doesn't really want to make this, this important. Then the rest of the chapter, he's proclaimed king at Mizpah, and then we start seeing some things happen 
that indicate that he is the Messiah. A Messiah is someone who would defend and deliver Israel. A Messiah is one who would be authenticated by, by miracles, and yet there's the, the hint of something negative coming. The end of verse 27, after Saul's been anointed and crowned, he goes home to Gibeah. Some of the warriors go with him whose hearts God had touched. See, this is just another indication that God's supportive of Saul at this point, and Saul's a believer, and the people around him are believers. But there were some rebels who said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. This is where you say, "Uh Uh-oh, there's problems at home. Chapter 11, uh, Nahash the Ammonite invades and goes against Jabesh-Gilead, and this is the opportunity for Saul to come out and to uh, defeat uh, Nahash, defeat the Ammonites, and to protect Israel. And that is what, what takes place. In chapter 12, we have another one of those great chapters related to the spiritual life of Israel. And he and Samuel warns the people about what they're going to get, uh, what they're going to get with Saul. And he te- tells them that uh, he's listened to them. He gave them a king. Uh, God directed him to them, but he says, here's the issue. The issue is you have to repent toward God or it won't work. You have to be obedient towards God. In verse 14, he says, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. This is foreshadowing because it, it, by, in a couple of chapters, Saul's the one who's going to be disobedient. So the key principles repeated again in 24 and 25, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your house. Then we have another example of Saul's arrogance in chapter 13. Uh, a couple of years later, there's another battle with the Philistines at a place called Michmash. This is going to be fun and interesting, and boy, do we have to spend some map time on this when we get to chapters 13 and 14. But he is told to wait, take the army of the Lord there, and wait at Michmash and not do anything until Samuel comes. They waited seven days in verse 8, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. The people were beginning to scatter and go home. Saul got impatient. He said, bring, the, bring me a burnt offering, and, and he offered the burnt offering. He didn't have the right to do that. He was a king. He wasn't a priest. And this indicates, again, his arrogance, his disobedience to the law, and this foreshadows what is just about to happen. Then we have an interesting scenario in the rest of that chapter, in chapter 14, where Saul makes this foolish oath and says that, that as they go into battle, nobody can eat. Cursed is any man who eats any food until evening. That's in chapter 14, verse 24. And uh, he says, I will take uh, anyone who eats during the day, I will take his life. And, of course, Jonathan's not present. Jonathan eats. He eats some honey during the day. And Saul later on discovers this and is going to have uh, Jonathan executed. But the people rebel, and they won't let Jonathan—I mean, let Saul do that. And then at the end, we have sort of a summary statement about his establishing sovereignty over Israel in verse 47 and fighting against all their enemies and unifying the country. And verse 48, he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites. This is the historic enemy of Israel. And in chapter 15, God told him that he was to attack Amalek and utterly destroy, this is in 15.3, utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So they had a couple hundred thousand uh, sheep and about 10,000 camels and donkeys. So the people get together. They killed uh, everybody but the best cattle, the best sheep, and they didn't kill Agag. If you ever see the movie King David with, um, what's his name, who plays plays David? What? Richard Gere, Richard Gere play, plays David. And Ed Edward... Edward Woodward, 
the guy who played uh, he he was uh, he played King Saul, and he I forget who played who played Samuel, but Samuel comes into the tent, and Saul is there, and this guy just says, "What's that bleeding I hear?" and just Ed, Edward Woodward just played that perfectly. He says it gets all the rationalizations, and then. Agag walks in, and Samuel takes one look at him, and he's standing right next to Saul, and in one slick, smooth move, he pulls Saul's sword out of its scabbard and takes Agag's head clean off and then puts the sword back in just a beautiful choreographed move. But that's exactly what happens in the text. As Samuel comes in and he's angry at Saul because he's disobeyed, uh, disobeyed God, and Samuel executes Agag, which was what God's original command would be, and then he confronts Saul with it. In verse 19, he says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? That disobedience might seem good, might seem so harsh to take the life of everybody and kill all the... I mean, we could sell the cattle and the camel and the sheep and the goats and get some good money for that. You could come up with a lot of rationales, but Samuel says, no, that's evil. And then in verse 22, he says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The issue is obedience. It's not the sacrifices. And he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, a principle restated many times in the Old Testament. And then mark this down. You should have this underlined, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. If you're rebellious to God, you're into demonism, period. You don't have to be dealing with a Ouija board. You don't have to be dealing with with tarot cards. You don't have to be reading your astrology. You don't have to be going down to the first church of Satan. You just have to be rebellious towards God, and you're already in demonology. You're already in demonism. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. By stubbornness, that means the refusal to repent. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. But Samuel said to Saul in verse 26, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 28 Then Samuel turns, uh, Saul grabs the edge of his robe and it tears off. And then Samuel turns around and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. Now that's a great verse to memorize. The strength of Israel is God. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent for he is not a man that he should relent. Now we get into verse 16, and chapter 16, rather. Saul is sent to anoint David, and he does. David's out with the sheep, though. God just says, go to uh, Jesse, have a sacrifice ready, and one of his sons will be the one that I'll tell you will, you will anoint. And he looks at all of them, and they're not there. He says, well, none of those are the ones that God said to anoint. He said, oh, yeah, there's one other kid. He's out with the sheep. He's not going to amount to much. And Samuel said, bring him in, and they brought him in, and God said, this is the one. And so he anointed David. Next thing we see in the rest of the chapter is that Saul is now experiencing his um, demonism, or demonization, rather. He is out of fellowship, and he's being oppressed by demons. He's not demon-possessed. He's just demon-influenced in a severe way. The, the distressing spirit is always upon him, or but never in him. And so bring, we see him bringing David in, and David plays the liar, and this, uh, this calms Saul down. Chapter 17, David defeats Goliath. Everybody knows that story. That is an indication of his messianic purpose. He delivers Israel from their enemies. And then what we see in chapters 18 and uh, following, 18 down to through chapter 22 is, is, or actually through chapter 23, 
is Saul attempting to kill David again and again and again and again. That summarizes it. Sixteen times he tries to kill David. A couple of times David catches Saul alone but refuses to do anything. There are tremendous lessons here about authority because it's not just the fact that David refuses to kill Saul, but he refuses to let anybody do anything towards Saul. And when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, an Amalekite is going to take credit for killing Saul. And David says, are you an Amalekite? Yep. Second time, did you kill Saul? Yep. Off with your head. Executes him because he killed Saul. Was it God's will for Saul to be killed? Yes. Was it God's will for the Israelite army to be defeated at Mount Gilboa? Yes. Was it man's responsibility to touch the Lord's anointed? No. And there's a great lesson there. So as we go through that last part, we're going to see these cycles as David is constantly chased and finally Saul goes into full-born spiritual perversion and he's so concerned about whether he's going to survive that he goes to a medium, the witch at Endor, to see if he's going to survive. And that's when God allows this this necromancer, the witch at Endor, to uh, actually call Samuel up from the grave. It's never happened to her before. She's faked it all these years. And when the real thing happens, she is just scared to death. And she's, she realizes that Saul's who he is because he's been disguised and she re- recognizes who he is, he, she is, and she's scared. Who he is, and she's scared to death. But Sa- Samuel confirms Saul's going to be defeated. He won't survive the next day. And then we see how God protects David because David gets to buddy up with his enemy, the Philistines, but he never goes against Israel. He has to leave the country because of Saul's persecution. But he never goes against God or against the Israelites. He just has to get somewhere where he can be safe. The message is the gospel, that the only hope is God's grace. God's Messiah is the one who delivers Israel from the depravity and the corruption of their sin. It is God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from sin by his death on the cross. Samuel is a gospel. It is the good news of how God delivers us from the depravity and corruption and perversion of sin. And it only comes through grace, through his Messiah, which ultimately is Jesus Christ who dies for our sins. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at 1 Samuel, to do this flyover, to kind of get an orientation and understanding of this uh, tremendous book. As we look forward to getting into the details Uh, in the coming weeks to study this and to apply these principles to our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.